Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents his teaching, It's a Heart Thing. All right, praise the Lord. I want to talk to you this morning about your heart. And for lack of a better title, and with a little suggestion from my wife, I'm calling it, It's a Heart Thing. It's a Heart Thing. Now, I know when I teach on the heart, I teach that the spirit and soul in combination form what we call the heart of man. And I recently taught a whole series on the three-part nature of man, but I really don't want to go down that trail today. So if you're interested, you can find it on our podcast. It's called spirit, soul, and body. But for the purposes of this message, I want you to think of your heart as your innermost being. The part of you that's invisible to most everybody around you, but is not invisible to God. Now, I want to illustrate the point by sharing one of the most touching and profound stories in all the Bible. Amen. It's the story of how God became displeased with King Saul Israel's first king, and how God instructed the prophet Samuel to anoint the one who would take his place as king. He tells Samuel to call for the sons of Jesse, a man from Bethlehem, and tells him he will show him which of his sons he was to anoint to be the next king of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. English Standard Version, 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7. Turn in your devices or in your Bible. When they came, this is talking about Jesse and his sons. When they came, he, the prophet Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Isn't that wonderful? So after looking at Eliab, the oldest and the tallest of Jesse's sons, Samuel thought to himself, this has to be the guy. But the Lord told Samuel, don't look at his physical stature That's not the way that I evaluate a person. I'm not looking at the outside. I'm looking at what's on the inside. I'm after their heart, and I want to find out if they're after mine. And if you read the rest of the story, after passing seven of his sons before Samuel, none of which were acceptable to the Lord, he asked Jesse, do you have any more sons? So let's pick it up here in 1 Samuel. Skip on down to verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. Some translations also say the smallest. So the youngest and the smallest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him For we will not sit down till he comes here. In other words, we're not going to sit down. We're not going to fellowship. 
We're not going to have dinner. We're not going to do anything until I've seen all the sons of Jesse, just like the Lord told me to. Amen. Verse 12. And Jesse sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So did a little study. Ruddy means to be red. So evidently he had red hair, a peaches and cream complexion, and beautiful eyes. David was a handsome young ginger, as they say these days. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now David just happens to be my favorite person in all the Bible. I'm probably not alone in that. But I know from studying David over many, many years... He did not lead a perfect life by any means. He made a lot of mistakes, and he blew it big time when he sinned with Bathsheba. But because he was quick to repent, because he had a heart for God, God had a heart for him. The next passage I'm going to read is an excerpt of a sermon that Paul preached in a place called Antioch of Pisidia. And it was preached to an audience of Jews and Gentiles. And in that sermon, Paul relates the history of Israel and tells these people how God used the line of King David to bring Jesus, the Savior, into the world. So let's pick that up in Acts chapter 13, verse 21 through 23. English Standard Version. That's Acts 13, 21 223. This is Paul preaching. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but it makes sense to me that God would pick the line of David, a man after his own heart, to bring Jesus, another man after his own heart, into the world. So i got to talk a little bit more about the history of Israel. Just bear with me so I can set the rest of the teaching up. So prior to the return from Babylonian captivity, the predominant issue with the nation of Israel was idolatry, the worship of false gods. It was idolatry that had caused God to bring judgment on the house of Israel through the hands of the Babylonian empire. And they were under their domination for 70 years, during which time they utterly destroyed the city of Jerusalem And the temple that Solomon had built. How tragic is that? God anointed Solomon to build that temple. And then he allowed it to be destroyed because of their sin. And all the best and the brightest of Israel were carried away captive to the city of Babylon. 
So after almost two generations of captivity, the people of Israel returned to their homeland. So let's fast forward from then about 500 years in the future to the time of Jesus. And it seems that the pendulum concerning the nation of Israel had swung in the opposite direction. They went from an utter disdain for the laws of God and the worship of false gods to an obsession with laws and ordinances. They had even over the years added their own interpretations and their own tradition to the law that was given to Moses. And it turned into a system of complicated and burdensome laws and ordinances placed upon the people. Jesus was so disgusted by it, he scolded the Pharisees, the leading religious party of the day, and told them that they had made the word of God completely ineffective because of their tradition. The whole point of the law was completely lost to the religious leadership of Jesus' day. In an attempt to fulfill the letter of the law, they had missed entirely the spirit of the law. Amen. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He said the letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. Amen. Second Corinthians 3, 6. Jesus again addresses the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 23 and 24. New King James Version. Matthew 23, 23 and 24. This is Jesus speaking. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. This is called hyperbole, and Jesus used it a lot. It is emphasis by exaggeration. He's saying, you choke when a gnat flies in your mouth, but you openly swallow a camel. In other words, you have completely missed the big picture concerning the law. And they were taking things to ridiculous extremes. So I want to read another example where Jesus points out that the Pharisees had an obsession with the nuances and the intricacies of the law. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 7. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 7, New King James Version. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, a little bit of background. This was actually allowed by the law. After the harvest was over, the poor and others were allowed to glean and eat whatever was left over in the fields. But the Pharisees were upset because they were doing it on the Sabbath. Verse 2. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Mind you, that's their interpretation. 
Then Jesus literally takes them to school on proper interpretation of the law. And it's awesome, starting in verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Listen, David and his men at this time were on the run from King Saul. And because the priests didn't have any ordinary bread, they fed them with the showbread, the ceremonial bread of the house of God. It would be like I did when I was an acolyte and broke into the wafers and ate some of the wafers that I wasn't supposed to eat. I was an acolyte in the Episcopal Church. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. Amen. We would also get into the wine and tip it back as well. An acolyte, they're the little boys in the robes that, did, that, that put the candles out, light them and put them out and do all kind of other stuff like that. That's an acolyte. <laughs> so anyway, to give them this bread to eat might have been technically wrong. But it was necessary and right to show mercy and compassion to David and his men. That's the balance that they were missing. Verse 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? You study that out. What he's saying is don't you realize that on the Sabbath they go in there, the priests go in there and they do work on the Sabbath? They have tasks that they have to complete on the Sabbath. And they are blameless. Verse 6, Jesus says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. I think it's verse 9 later on in the passage. He says, By the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath and I say it's okay. Verse 7, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, this is a quote from the prophet Hosea, who expressed pretty much the same heartfelt sentiment to the people of his day. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. But I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. First thing I want you to see is that the Hebrew word here in Hosea 6.6 is translated as steadfast love instead of mercy as in Matthew 12.7. And I actually think that makes a little bit more sense because I can't fathom the notion of extended mercy to God. So to me, steadfast love is more fitting than mercy and makes more sense in this setting. So what God is saying through these scriptures that we just read to a people who were under the law is that he was more interested in capturing their heart than whether they could fulfill every technical detail of the law. I want your steadfast love, he says. I want you to know me more than what you can do for me. I want you to be a people that are after my heart because I'm after yours.
God would say, if I can capture your heart, I know that ultimately you will live right and you will do right. Now, if God felt that way about the people who were under the law, how much more must he feel that way about us who were under the new covenant? In fact, God was so vested in capturing your heart that he made a way for you through Christ to receive a new heart that is already programmed to follow hard after God. Listen to what the prophets of old said about the plans that God had for the hearts of the people of Israel and the hearts of all the rest of us. Ezekiel 36, 26. English Standard Version. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 33. Very similar prophecy. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Amen. Both these scriptures are talking about the new birth, the coming new birth, the born again experience. Amen. That would come through the finished work of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. I feel like I preach this so often. You've seen this scripture so often. You should, you should know it by heart by now. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And verse 18 says, and all things are of God. Once you get born again, God puts a new man or new woman on the inside of you that's just like him. It's made of God's stuff. Amen. It's as righteous and holy as he is. I know it's hard to conceive of, but it's the truth. As I've said many times before, the challenge of the Christian life is to get what's in you to show up on the outside. Amen. What's in your spirit to manifest in your soul, your mind, your will, your intellect your personality, and in your body. Amen. But it is possible. That's why he put that man there in the first place. Let me go back and look at a few things that I've said before, but we'll say it again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If you look at the context and you look at the original language, it implies it's a new creation that never before existed without precedent. He didn't just heal your old dead spirit. He pulled that spirit out and he put a new spirit in. I confess to you that I do not understand the mechanics of how that works, but I believe it because it's in the Bible. Amen. Second Corinthians 521, another mind blower and one that you should know by heart. For he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Amen. The moment you were born again, you became the righteousness of God in Him. Not in you. Not in your righteousness. In Him and in His righteousness. Amen. 
It's fundamental, but many times we forget there is a man on the inside of us that always wants to do the right thing, that always wants to pray, that always wants to worship God, that always wants to read your Bible, that always wants to walk in love. There is a person in there like that. You just need to learn how to tap into him or her. So kind of circling back a little bit. So what was the purpose of the law? Why was it even necessary? Why not just cut to the chase? Well, there's a fascinating passage in Galatians chapter 3 that really explains it very well. Galatians 3, verse 23 and 24. I'll be reading in the New King James Version. That's Galatians 3, 23 and 24. This is Paul speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Amen. Justified, if you remember, means when you get born again, when you put faith in Christ, it is just if I'd never sinned. Amen. It's a good way to remember what justification means. So here we see that the purpose of the law was to lead those that were under the law to faith in Christ. To present such a standard of righteousness that nobody could ever hope to live up to it. So they would acknowledge that they were hopeless sinners and in need of a Savior. And that's what we all did when we came to Christ. Isn't that right? We looked at God's righteousness and then we looked at our righteousness and we knew there was no comparison. We threw up our hands and we said, I am hopelessly lost. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. Isn't that right? So now that we're under the new covenant, Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And we don't have to. And through the new birth, Jesus put his righteousness on the inside of us and gave us only one law to follow. The royal law of love it has two components. Matthew 22, verse 35 through 40. In the New Living Translation. Now this is a story about how a scribe was sent to try and trip up Jesus with some technical questions about the law. Verse 35. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with his question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So how could we sum this up? Well, it says that, that if you love God and you love people, you will fulfill the royal law of love. I know it's, it's a cliche, and it's, it's on many a church's website. Love God, love people. But it's a cliche, but it's a pretty good cliche. It's a way to live your life. Love God, 
love people. And Jesus said, if you'll do those two things, you'll fulfill every tenet of the law that's important to God. Again, he's more interested in capturing your heart than in what you can do for him in terms of some kind of personal sacrifice or offering that you can bring to him or in terms of perfectly fulfilling some list of do's and don'ts in your life. Do's and don'ts won't cut it. That's not what God is after. He's after your heart. Again, God says, if I can capture your heart, I know that ultimately you will live right and you will do right. I want to share a testimony along these lines that, that I thought of last night when I was putting the finishing touches on this message. About 20 years ago, when Trisha and I were in prison ministry in northern Louisiana, we ministered at a particular facility where Jerry Savelle's nephew was incarcerated. Those of you that don't know Jerry Savelle, he's a very gifted teacher of the Word of God, been around for 40 years, and he's one of the teachers I look up to. But anyway, we ran across Jerry Savelle's nephew. I believe he was in there on a drug charge, and he started coming to our meetings, and we got to know him a little bit. And one day we were sitting uh, across the desk from him, and he asked me this question. He said, Brother Scott, do you have anything in your life that you struggle with? You seem like you have it all together. Are there any temptations you deal with? I looked at him and said, listen, I may look like I got it all together, but trust me, I got my struggles and I got my battles. He said, well, how then can you live a life that's pleasing to God? How in the world can I overcome all of these temptations that come at me from all angles all the time? How is a man supposed to deal with that? And I asked the Holy Spirit quietly, Lord, help me to answer him. And this is what came out. If you will become a man after God's own heart, if you will fall in love with Jesus, you'll have less and less trouble with sin in your life. Because your whole mindset will change. When you face temptation, these kind of thoughts will come into your heart. If I do this, it's going to hurt my father. It's going to grieve him. He's done so much for me. How could I betray him by doing this when I know it's wrong? I'm telling you, saints, that's the key to overcoming sin. Be a man or woman after God's own heart. Fall in love with Jesus. So that the thought of doing something that would insult them or grieve them in any way would stop you dead in your tracks. And you'll say, you know what? I'm just going to steer clear of this because I do not want to let my father down. Isn't that right? That's someone with a heart after God. That's someone fallen in love with Jesus. And I pray since I kind of lost track of him after that when he got out of prison, I pray that he took those words to heart and I pray that today he's living a life that's glorifying the Lord. Amen. So let me leave you with this thought. God is after your heart. It's clear from the word of God. So make up your mind to be a man or a woman after his.
Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Forrest's message. It's a heart thing. If you were blessed by this message and would like to donate to our ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at gofaithlife.com. If you're in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 9.45 a.m. for coffee and fellowship and 10.30 for worship and service. If you would like to learn more about us and hear more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.